Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck. And I'm Kemper Donovan. And this week, we are taking on the mystery of the blue train. A novel at long last. A novel, so exciting. I know. This was originally published on March 29th, 1928, but it's actually an expansion of the short story, The Mystery of the Plymouth Express, which was published in the sketch, obviously, on April 4th, 1923. So just like with the big four, we have a case here where Agatha Christie was not writing the novel from scratch. She basically was just getting by, just trying to create something to make money, a reminder that um, The Big Four was the first book that was published after her infamous disappearance, which, of course, we spoke about in our last episode. But The Big Four had actually been written or compiled, for the most part, before that disappearance episode uh, took place, we believe. The timing of all this gets a little hazy. But this was the first book that Christie finished writing after the disappearance. And for that reason, we noted that she called The Big Four that rotten book, and she actually referred to The Mystery of the Blue Train as that wretched book. And I just think it's interesting to read out just her feelings and her thoughts about this book. To begin with, I had no joy in writing, no elan. I had worked out the plot, a conventional plot, partly adapted from one of my other stories. I knew, as one might say, where I was going, but I could not see the scene in my mind's eye, and the people would not come alive. I was driven desperately on by the desire, indeed the necessity, to write another book and make some money. That was the moment when I changed from an amateur to a professional. I assumed the burden of a a profession, which is to write even when you don't want to, don't much like what you are writing, and aren't writing particularly well. I have always hated the mystery of the blue train, but I got it written and sent off to the publishers. It sold just as well as my last book had done, so I had to content myself with that, though I cannot say I have ever been proud of it. That is Dame Agatha's thoughts on The Mystery of the Blue Train. And you know what? I'm going to say, while it's certainly not one of her best books, I have fonder feelings towards this book than I think Agatha herself did. I do, too. I think she was very hard on it because of the time that it was written and the memories that it it brought up. But it is not dreadful. No, it's not dreadful. (laughs) It's essentially a hybrid between her thriller Mm -hmm. and mystery puzzles that, that, that she writes. She goes in either direction, but in this one, she kind of goes down the middle. But it doesn't have the pastiche quality no, it that the big four did, which was also straddling the world between the two, but doing it badly. And I think this one is at least doing it interestingly and coherently and somewhat cohesively, which you could not say for the big well, four. Well, and I would also say the, the writing itself is stronger in this. Agreed. Absolutely. Let's just get into it and start with the victim. So our victim is Ruth Kettering. She's a striking, if a little bit like hard, auburn-haired American heiress. Uh-oh, auburn-haired. Good thing Captain Hastings isn't around. (laughs) I know. That was my very first, very first thought. It was, oh, Captain Hastings would be very interested in this. (laughs) You would have been like, awooga, awooga. I know. I know. You could feel him from uh, all the way from Argentina. She's on the brink of divorce from her 'er ne'er-do-well husband, and uh, she's in possession of a 
infamous ruby called the Heart of Fire, and she happens to be strangled on the blue train on its way to Nice, and her head is smashed in, and her rubies go missing. And just to make this clear from the get-go, the blue train itself is a train that travels from Calais to Nice, so it goes, you know, basically traverses all of France, and it was a train that the upper classes traveled at the beginning of the season as they were going down to the south of France for, I believe, the entire 20th century. I think it only stopped running in the early 2000s. And I think it was called the blue train because the sleeping cars had blue beds, so... It's not the Orient Express. Basically, I always thought of this book as, oh, right, it's the Agatha Christie train book that's not the murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, but another very nice train. This is not like a No, stock no, car. another very nice and real train for rich people. So let's get into the suspects. Of course, the husband of the victim comes first, and that would be Derek Kettering, who is handsome, charming, and dead-ridden. He is the son of a member of the landed gentry with a name and an estate that go back for centuries. So he married Ruth for her fortune, and she married him potentially for love, but probably for his estate. Kind of a a little bit of a Downton Abbey-esque thing going on here, except that they don't seem to really care for each other that much. He is going to be ruined if she divorces him for cheating on her. Of course, now that she's dead, her fortune is his, unless, of course, he is convicted of her murder. Linked to that would be Morale, who's a famous French dancer and the amoureuse <laughs> of Derek. Um, she's <laughs> very exotic looking. She's extremely jealous. Um, at one point, I believe she literally throws herself on the floor screaming. And she is eager to have Ruth out of the picture. Um, and she's also not eager to have an impoverished Derek on right, she's arm. interested in securing Derek, but securing Derek's wealth along with the man himself. Mm-hmm. Then we have Armand, the Comte de la Roche, who is Ruth's original love. She actually fell in love with him before she ever met Derek and married him. He appears to kind of sort of be a Europe- European aristocrat, but he's probably more likely a massive con artist. Right. <laughs> Ruth is running off to meet him in the south of France with her new rubies to escape her loveless marriage to Derek. She wants to return to her first true love. It's And it's unclear whether or not the Comte is actually in love with horror or is just potentially trying to get those those darn rubies. The assumption is the latter. It actually, when I say it's not clear, it's fairly yeah, it's clear. clear. Yeah, at least by, by like the middle of the book. Right. And so then we have the Monsieur Le Marquis, who is an enigma. He's a shadowy, unknown oh, persona boy. who's often found in these Christie thrillers. So we know that he has to be another character that we meet, but we don't know who. And he's a well-known con artist and Joel thief. Right. And this is where we see the hybrid nature of this story. The death of Ruth being strangled on a train in a closed environment is very mystery puzzle. It's very whodunit. But then we have the Marquis, who is totally within the tradition of Mr. Brown and the Colonel and Number Four and all these other mysterious people from other Agatha Christie thrillers. Next suspect is Ada Mason, who is Ruth's lady's maid, and she is one of the last people to see Ruth alive on the train. And last but certainly not least. Certainly not least. We have Catherine Gray, and she's a former elderly caretaker and very astute listener who inherits a small fortune um, after the death of one of her like long-term clients. And mm-hmm. uh, upon finally having some money in her life, she leaves her small town home in, guess where? St. Mary St. Mary Mead! <laughs> um, 
And so in the hopes of having a more exciting life, she buys an entire new wardrobe and she decides that what she is going to do is take up an offer by some distant relatives to head to Nice to see them. And while she is pretty much obviously set up to be our heroine, she's also one of the last people to see Ruth alive. Right. About a third of the way through the book, by far the most exciting thing that I thought had happened was that St. Mary Mead had been name-checked, since that, of course, (laughs) is where our beloved Miss Jane Marple hails from, and we will be getting to her very shortly. But anyway, we have a bunch of other characters as well. This is definitely a large cast of characters in this novel. So these are other characters with potential motives who were not on the train, but who we should absolutely be suspicious of, and many of whom, or at least some of whom, will come to play a part in the murder. The first is Rufus Van Alden, who is Ruth's loving, if overbearing, millionaire American father, and he is very upset with his daughter for remaining in a bad marriage. He urges insistently that she divorce Derek Kettering. He, in fact, bribes and even follows Derek Kettering. He is then even more upset when he finds out that his daughter has been having her own extramarital dalliances with the Comte. So he is fit to be tied. And then, of course, when he finds out that his dear darling daughter is murdered, he is even more upset, and he's the one that actually hires Poirot and wants him to look into this further. And he has a very loyal secretary who's with him at all times, Major Knighton, who was traumatically wounded in the war, and who Van Alden apparently has met in Switzerland and thinks very highly of. He doesn't really have a motive, but he does have access to the rubies, he does have access to Van Alden, and he has been charged with essentially bribing and kind of following Derek. Then we have the Tamplins, both mother and daughter, Lady Tamplin and her daughter, Lennox Tamplin. And they are distant relations to Catherine Gray. Lady Tamplin is all of a sudden, upon learning that Catherine Gray has come into money, all about reconnecting and getting her to come to Nice because, of course, she wants to tap her for some of that cash. And she's just within society, so she's known Derek Kettering since he was very young. Her daughter Lennox Tamplin has, in fact, been in love with Derek Kettering since she was a child. And she's pretty sarcastic and probably the most entertaining character Mm -hmm. within the novel. There are a lot of cases in which Christie creates characters that are meant to be charming and funny, but they're not. This is a case in which... You can tell Lennox is, but she is. Lennox Lennox is totally meant to be charming and a little bit of comic relief, and she absolutely is. Finally, we have Monsieur Papopoulos, who is a very posh antique stealer in Paris and a jewel expert. Although, uh, let's just say he doesn't exactly mind being a jewel expert and posh antique stealer who fences stolen goods. So Ruth Kettering is fleeing to the French Riviera for some sun and fun, but really to run off with the Comte. And she takes the precious heart of fire with her on the train. Understandably, perhaps, if you've just pulled a runner, she gets a little bit of cold feet on the train, and she happens to thankfully be sitting uh, across from the really great listener, Catherine Gray, (laughs) who, poor Catherine, all Catherine has done for the last 10 years is listen to people complain to her at length. Well, she doesn't really get to do anything else. And then she gets on this fancy train for her fancy vacation. And the first thing that happens is some rich girl sits across from her and decides to tell her all of her life's woes. Yeah. So uh, Catherine basically tells her, well, 
you know what, maybe you should call your dad and have him come meet you in Paris. Or maybe he could otherwise intervene so that you don't make an absolutely terrible mistake. And Ruth is, you know, so glad that Catherine just spent the time listening to her and feels better. And she appears to make a decision. And then, of course, she immediately dismisses Catherine also. It's very well handled. It's a deft scene in which we're definitely on Catherine's side. And she's not surprised at at all when Ruth just totally dismisses her after she's used her for purposes of, un, you know, unloading. But she's, not, but she's not actually that resentful about it either. She's just like, no, yeah, that figures. No, she has a sense of humor. Well, she has a sense yeah. of humor, which is so textbook the heroine of these thrillers. If you had to pick one characteristic that the young women in these thrillers have, it's a sense of humor. And right. Catherine Gray certainly has it. She, I think she's a little different from the heroines in the earlier thrillers that Christie wrote, but she certainly does have that sense of humor and just that kind of joie de vivre. Yeah, for sure. And so also on the train, because she's been dismissed from this conversation, she goes to another car where she happens to then be seated across from our beloved Monsieur Poirot, who happens to (laughs) notice her. Because as he says, I see, madame, that you have a roman policier. You are fond of such things? They amuse me, Catherine admitted. The little man nodded with an air of complete understanding. They have a good sale always. So I am told. Now why is that, eh, mademoiselle? I ask you, as a student of human nature, why should that be? Catherine felt more and more amused. Perhaps they give one the illusion of living an exciting life, she suggested. He nodded gravely. Yes, there is something in that. He goes on to tell her that he hopes that she gets to live out her mystery novel, which, coincidentally, she's about to. It's a funny passage coming from someone it's meta. who... It's meta for someone who writes mystery novels, but it's especially meta for someone who writes mystery novels and also just had a real life. We don't really want to call it an adventure. I certainly don't think that Agatha Christie herself thought of it that way, but she, she certainly had an interesting uh, little period in her life happen there. Yep. <laughs> By the way, when Rufus Van Alden is telling his daughter that she needs to move on from Derek Kettering and just divorce him and get over it, that also felt very meta to me, where it's just these yeah, this brutal language of like, just just move on, you have to let go. And rip, get, rip the band-aid off. Yeah, rip the band-aid off, get over it. It's just, it was really interesting that obviously someone who was still, uh, and because it took her a while to divorce Archie, she was in the throes of figuring that out while she was writing it. You can really feel that. Onward, Onward. we meet Catherine again uh, upon disembarking. Well, we see her adventures on the train. She, like, watches people go in and out of the train. That's very (laughs) all exciting. Um, But when she finally disembarks at Nice, uh, the distant relatives are picking her up, and she's about to go with them when, in fact, the French police (laughs) take her aside and are like, hey, we need to speak with you. And they basically bring her into a detached train car. Mm -hmm. And they're like, so funny story. You were one of the last people to see Ruth alive. And Catherine's like, oh, my God, did she, you know, have a heart attack and die? And the French police are like, no, no, no. She's been strangled to death and her head was bashed in. Yeah, it's this really great moment because we have this extended sequence where it's this mundane travelogue of Catherine just 
being in the train and watching people come and go. And then it's this bureaucratic kind of thing where she gets pulled into this car. She's like, hmm, I wonder what's happening. And just I found it to be a really grounded kind of way to find out that the murder victim in this murder mystery had in fact been murdered. There's no sort of scream that you hear from afar or any of the cliches that you get, quite honestly, in all adaptations of Christie novels and certainly in the adaptation of this one, it was just, it was unusual. And those are just the kinds of little peculiarities of these novels that just get erased in the adaptations because everyone just wants the formula. Right. And we do also learn at that point that Derek and his mistress, Morel, were on the train at the same time. Derek was, in fact, one of the people who Catherine noted while she was on the, on the train. So in terms of now the snapshot of the world as it seems to be, if the husband is in the next train birth and his estranged wife is found strangled and then he is about to inherit several million of her pounds, logic would have it that the husband has done it. On top of that, Morel, his mistress, starts telling people that he said he was going to do it all the way back in London. And of course, Catherine saw him entering Ruth's compartment. And the police also find a cigarette case marked with a K on the ground of the compartment, which Ruth's maid, Ada Mason, says Ruth had given or intended to give to Derek. So the police arrest Derek. It seems like he did it. He's in jail. The end, except... That's not how the world actually is, mm-hmm. because, of course, nothing nothing here is ever going to be that clear or obvious, particularly if Poirot and now his sidekick can notice that details are awry in this scenario. So the lessons here are more or less as typical early Christie as anything else we've seen. In other words, and in short... Never trust actors, <laughs> never trust anybody who wears a wig, never trust people with limps. Mm-hmm. And if you have a timeline that is really setting up your crime, you better make sure that you can double and triply verify it. Yep. Yep. So let's go through what actually happens. Right. When the police, um, they've arrested Derek. Van Alden, Rue's father, has arrived in Nice uh, with Major Knighton, and he's decided that, in fact, he's going to use all of his millions of American dollars to ask Poirot to independently investigate the daughter's death, as he gets the distinct vibe from Poirot that Poirot is not actually certain of Derek's guilt. Right. And also, keep in mind, the rubies are also still missing. Right, right. No one knows where the rubies are. So... Poirot takes on Catherine as his Hastings stand-in, although she is, of course, a far more astute version and a far less murderous version than the previous Hastings stand-in, Dr. Shepard <laughs> from the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Sorry, that's, I, that's definitely I guess true. it's a little bit of a spoiler, but Catherine is not the murderer. So Catherine decides to assist, partly to get away from Lady Tamplin, who is a gossip monger and general busybody. Although, as we mentioned, it turns out that her daughter Lennox is actually really funny and with it, and she and Catherine become friends. Also, uh, on the personal relations front, Derek Kettering becomes obsessed with Catherine's gray, naturally, eyes, and he keeps seeking her out to confide in her and insist on his innocence, albeit he only does that until he is actually hauled off to the proverbial slammer. And Van Alden and Major Knighton also seem to appreciate having Catherine on board, particularly the latter. Major Knighton, again, just as a reminder, that's the secretary to Rufus Van Alden. He also seems to be really, really down with those fabulous gray eyes. And somewhere during all of this, by the way, Derek actually confesses his infatuation for Catherine. And then immediately afterwards, within the same scene, Major Knighton also shows up. He interrupts 
Derek's confession, and he proceeds to also confess his infatuation for Catherine. While this is happening on a beautiful seaside niece bench, uh, Catherine also sees or senses the ghost of Ruth. (laughs) And more or less freaks out. But here, okay, so here's the, here's the ridiculous thing. She senses the ghost of Ruth, and she gets a specific sort of message from her, but we're not yeah, allowed to does. know what the message is until because until almost the end until of the, the book. end of the book because it would totally give away who the murderer is. So it's as if we're all of a sudden catapulted into what lies beneath, which I would hope many <laughs> listeners are familiar <laughs> with. Um, <laughs> the very time, very timely very reference. Timely reference. I believe it came out in 2000. I happen to have seen it recently. I'm happy to inform you that it does hold up as a silly domestic thriller. <laughs> Ladies stick together, even <laughs> even even, in, even death. in death. I think she's starting to suspect something. But it's like, not only is she like in the middle of like a sunny afternoon in Nice and all of a sudden being haunted by a ghost, but then she knows what the ghost is saying, but we're not told. It's just, that whole thing was ridiculous. I'm sorry that... I, I had problems with that sequence. I think I also had problems with the fact that, like, two men in a row are literally fighting each other off, basically, to confess their love for her, yeah. and then the ghost appears. We said that there's never any superstition or mumbo-jumbo in Agatha Christie novels, except where there is. And this is one case where there is, because the way that this is played and it is referenced later in the book, this is legit. She straight like up she, believes it. Yeah, she straight yeah, up believes it. She believes it, and we're supposed to agree with her. Like, yeah, we're supposed absolutely. to agree with her that this is this is a, you know, a real kind of communication that she's having from the beyond with the murder victim. Meanwhile, Poirot has met up with Van Alden, who is at this point kind of thinking that Poirot is a little nuts. Um, mm-hmm. And they, they join up uh, along with Knighton and Catherine at a tennis match in Cannes. And Poirot notices that Papopoulos is across the way in the stands. And since Papa Poirot is up on all facets of Euro crime, he immediately <laughs> clocks that if the man is in town, the rubies must still be in town and they're waiting to be fenced. And also, guess who's in town? Uh, the Comte de la Roche. And for obvious okay. reasons, due to his relationship with Ruth, he's questioned, but he has an alibi, but the police have him tailed, and they track him to a post office where he drops off a package, and that's addressed to, like, a rent-a-mail-type place in London, but then they intercept it, and the package turns out to contain the rubies. Of course. In a very convoluted fashion, Poirot gets his package, and he's going to give it back to Van Alden, but he holds on to the package. Turns out that he's using it so that he can wheedle information out of Papopoulos by showing him the rubies, which are actually paste, which Papopoulos immediately realizes. So the real rubies are still missing. And what Poirot wants is information on the other jewel thief essentially involved. So Papopoulos tells him it's this infamous, the Marquis. And Poirot wires that info to our dear inspector Jap and asks for any information Jap might have on him. So Poirot also convinces Catherine that she should take up the offer of an elderly lady who lived in St. Mary Mead and who was dying of cancer. 
and writes Catherine asking for her help. And Catherine is just rather anxious over all of the crime that has been going on around her, understandably so, and she feels for this older woman. And strangely enough, Poirot essentially tells her, yeah, go back to your caretaker lifestyle. And she does. And it's very, it is a very unexpected beat within the story. Right. And, and we even get an extended sequence with this other woman in St. Mary Mead and Catherine being back. While she's there, she's visited by Major Knighton, who is clearly head over heels in love with her. And he continues to woo her. So how does this all get solved? Provided, of course... <laughs> how, in, how indeed, because it doesn't sound like it's very close to getting solved how, at all. Um, Poirot also goes back to London, and he requests that Van Alden and Knighton please join him on another trip on the blue train, because there has to be some events that are surrounding this death that have yet to be cleared up and that he needs to wrap his head around. And so... In really a morbid fashion, they essentially play act the moments leading up to the murder of Ruth, which keep in mind this is her father involved here. Oh, there there are several moments in that Poirot is hired by Rufus Van Alden where he's just, he has this clinical discussion of the disfigurement of Ruth's face as murder victim. And then very abruptly also, Poirot just reveals that actually it's Knighton who murdered Ruth because, <laughs> well, <laughs> guess what? Um, Major Knighton is actually the infamous Monsieur Le Marquis and Ada Mason, the, Ada Mason, the lady's <laughs> Made, is actually an actress named Kitty Kid. Of course she is. What happened is this. They were both hired about two months previously, subsequent to Rufus Van Alden's purchase of the infamous Heart of Fire. And while they seem to have more or less intended to blame the murder and the theft of the rubies on the Comte de la Roche, due to Rufus Van Alden expressing how much he hated Derek Kettering to his secretary, Major Knighton, and to having Derek Kettering follow to try and bribe him, Derek actually became a very easy fall guy. Plus, inconveniently for Derek, he was also on the train, and he did actually go into Ruth's room to talk to her the night she was murdered, but thought that she was asleep when, in fact, she was dead with a blanket pulled over her head. And so the K on the dropped cigarette box actually stood for Knighton, not Kettering. Or Kitty. Yeah. Or Kid. Or Catherine. Or Catherine. Yeah. Of course, because you know, you know what this whole mystery boils down to? The K was silent. Aha. Uh-huh. Agatha. <laughs> um, and so basically... Ada slash Kitty lied about the providence of the cigarette box to cover it up. She also posed to be Ruth herself so that she was seen with her back to the open hall. She was the one who told the conductor that her maid had disembarked in Paris. She was the one who ordered food lifted up to the bunk. She also was the one who disembarked dressed as a boy in Lyon. That also explains why Ruth's face was bashed in because clearly somebody else, the conductor in this case, had seen her posing as Ruth. And so essentially this entire murder happened while the train was at the station in Lyon between um, Knighton and Ada slash 
Kitty. And so the entire confusion of the timeline is explained by the fact that this actually happens very quickly in one location. So it's one of those Christy puzzles in which the timeline is just gone over again and again, and then we get this way in which the the real timeline is just totally shifted from what it seemed to be, which changes everything. Right, so in other words, neither Um, Kitty nor Knighton at that point have any alibi because they're not in Paris. Exactly. We do also finally learn what that sensation, that ghostly sensation Catherine Gray got from the dead woman, from Ruth Kettering, and that was that Knighton had in fact somehow murdered Ruth. And Catherine relayed that sensation back to Papa Poro, not to the reader. And then Catherine went back to England just to keep up the subterfuge of basically giving up and giving up on Derek. Poor Derek, who was rotting away in prison. <laughs> she entertains Knighton's advances on her, which were, in fact, very real. Yeah. The one thing that gummed up the works here for the murderous duo of Major Knighton and Ada Mason, a.k.a. Kitty Kid, is that Knighton did, in fact, fall in love with Catherine Gray. Right. So, essentially, Knighton and Ada Mason are... Kitty, kid, um, they're apprehended. <laughs> um, Morel ends up performing on the stage with some part of the Heart of Fire necklace. Mm. Derek is released from prison, and he professes that he'll not be a philandering, deading ass anymore if only he could please have Catherine's love. I don't know if I have a lot of a lot of faith in the, their their future happiness, but they're they're going into it with the best of intentions, right? And then poor Lennox Tamplin is left heartbroken and in a really weird coda to the book. There's an entire chapter tacked onto the end where basically Poirot talks to her about how she one day will find love. And I would argue that this last bit, in terms of the wrapping up of the loose ends when it comes to romance, we can read through the lens of what was going on in Christie's life at the time. Because it's definitely very unconvincing whether or not Derek and Catherine will, in fact, be blissfully happy forever. Because we're told time and time again that Derek did actually go into his marriage with Ruth Kettering with the best of intentions. And it didn't work out. And he's doing the same thing again with Catherine Gray. Probably it'll work out better because Catherine Gray herself seems to be a character that just has the means to be a better partner for Derek Kettering, but it's by no means a, and they lived happily ever after. And then, yeah, I mean, Lennox Tamplin is just completely was in love with him and just did not get him. And now she just kind of has to deal with it and hope for the best. And that's kind of what I think Agatha Christie herself was feeling here in that she had to let go of Archie and hope for the best. And that's all she wrote. Except that's not all she wrote. She also wrote some clues. We've gone through a lot of them, but there are some like random ones, which mm-hmm. we I'm just bringing up because they're so typical. For example, Major Knighton, he's hired by Rufus Van Alden because he has a tragic war injury. And Lady Tamplin, coincidentally, was running the hospital where he was taken in at the end of the war for his injury. And she's surprised that he still has this limp because she had thought that he had made a full recovery after he was in her care from from his war injuries. And um, our deduction from that is that it's it's this throwaway line and it's Lady Tamplin and we're supposed to dismiss it, which is of course why we shouldn't dismiss it. And it's very important because it means that Major Knighton is probably lying and making up that limp. And there's a nefarious reason for that, which is probably that it just helped him get the job. We do learn later on there's this throwaway reference to a newspaper clipping about a jewel theft at 
Lady Tamplin's home when she was running the hospital for convalescents. And of course, that was an early jewel theft by the Marquis, a.k.a. Major Knighton. Right. And then also we've touched upon the train timeline, but we, we keep seeing this. It's about when they get out of the stations. It's like when people get on and off the trains. Could you get a faster train? This is a device that we keep seeing come up, and it obviously makes a big difference in this story. Poirot finds a reddish hair on the bed of the maid's chamber adjacent to Ruth's bedroom on the train. Even though we're told that Ada Mason does not have reddish hair and Ruth does, we could deduce from that that for some reason Ruth was in her maid's bed, but that's weird. Um, <laughs> or is it? What actually annoyed? What in Chrissy's world it is. But what what annoyed me about this clue is that we're we're not told until the end when Poirot is going through his deductions that the hair was synthetic and that it was a wig hair. When he finds it, we know that there's a strand of reddish hair, and it's only at the end when he says, oh, it was synthetic, it was a wig, because she was putting on a wig to pretend to be Ruth. No, it's true, but at the same time, he, like, very pointedly goes over and, like, picks up a strand of red hair and stares at it for a long time. I mean, it's it's telegraphed. Right. Um, synthetic right. or not. We're told that both Mason and Knighton have been with their respective employers for a relatively short amount of time. And it's actually the same amount of time for both of them, two months. Even though it's not presented certainly next to each other, we should be able to pick that up from the text and be like, huh, that's a suspicious coincidence. It's kind of a double clue because I think it's fair to say that in Christie, employees of short duration are automatically suspicious because we're always supposed to wonder if they became employees for nefarious reasons. Which in this case they Um, did. Which in this case they did. And also we have the fact that it was the exact same amount of time. Um, And then, you know, we mentioned this before, but just in terms of a good primer on disfigured faces, this is a direct quote from the book. Poirot speaking, it is not an uncommon thing to find when investigating a crime and it rouses an immediate question, the question of identity. He's speaking to Rufus Van Alden about coming across any disfigured face. We're kind of told if you have a disfigured face in a Christie book, it probably means that whoever that person is, there was some funny business going on with them maybe not being who they are or someone trying to in some way disguise their identity or something like that. Right. Let's move on. We can quickly go over the film adaptation, Mm -hmm. which is one of the later adaptations in the Suchet series. Fairly faithful. They viewed, I think, more closely to the mystery puzzle as opposed to the thriller aspect, and I don't really blame them for doing that. For example, Lady Tamplin and Lennox Tamplin are actually on the train with everyone else. Everyone is in the same enclosed space, so we get this more traditional locked room mystery in that they're all on this train. The book is definitely looser and has, you know, more of that roving thriller element. I will point out that the character of Morel in the adaptation is one of the most cynical and depressing characters. Yeah. <laughs> I've spent most of my life being kind, monsieur. Mostly to men of about your age. And look where it has got me. Whoring for no pay. Life. Grossly overrated. I find. You know, we talked about how the later seasons have a more somber tone, but even more than that, I just find that the way Suchet plays Poirot is very cantankerous. 
is the best way that I can put it. He just gets very angry when he's doing his whole reckoning inside the train because he has to gather them all inside a room again for purposes of telling them who done it. They're kind of like talking and laughing over him and he gets angry at them and basically tells them to shut up. S'il vous plaît, this mauvais moment for you all can only be prolonged by interruption. I advise against it. And I was planning to touch her for a check, monsieur, not murder her for her inheritance. Does this make things awkward between us? Oh, no, not at all. Oh, I am glad. You're really rather fun. I wouldn't want you to feel you couldn't come again. (laughs) (laughs) At one point, he hits Major Knighton in the leg with a stick. Like, he's just a very unhappy sort of a person well, I mean, and it's, it's just like it's clearly a a decision that Suchet or, or and or the producers made. It's clearly portraying Poirot himself as more isolated. He doesn't have his crew with him and it yeah. really does seem like perhaps living this life for all of these years has finally really taken its toll. Like, you can only actually do this for so long. I mean, I do think that tonally that is something that they're going for in these, but, um, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. It's bleaker. When I was first thinking about it, I was like, I don't mind this adaptation. And then I was like, you know what? No, I actually, like, I like the book way more than I like the adaptation. Well, I like the book way more, too. The only other thing I will say about the adaptation is that I hated this change they made where Major Knighton and, and Ada Mason got off on it. Like, they're actually depicted having sex over Ruth's dead body in the adaptation. She had the combination. She could have taken the duel at any time, but what you craved, both of you, was the savagery of murder, for it aroused you. (laughs) And even when Madame Catherine was dead, the violence, did not end. In the golden age of TV, we have to get edgier. Uh, you know what? I actually don't think we do in uh, in Agatha Christie's Poirot. I think we can leave that to all other corners of the TV world. I just, I didn't really need that. But let's move right along into our rankings for this novel. Our first category is plot mechanics. Take it away, Catherine. You know, it's a little bit bloated. The pieces do fit. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about it where I'm like, oh, that doesn't actually work. (laughs) It's not like there are these extraneous things that don't make sense. Like the things actually, you know, even the criminal connections all generally make a certain degree of sense. But yeah, I mean, it is very padded. Yeah, it's definitely padded. It doesn't have that stitched together quality I mentioned with the the big forehead where it was like putting together pieces that didn't really fit together and you could really tell. It meshes well, but I mean, it's still padded. padded. I, I read the short story that this was based on afterward just out of curiosity. Curiosity and absolutely every major element in the mystery puzzle of this novel is in that 15 page short story. Mm-hmm. And then it's just all expanded. And it's, you know, where a lot of those thriller elements, the beginning of the book, when she's setting up the heart of fire and all these jewel thieves and whatnot, it's just, it takes a while to get there. Poirot himself doesn't appear until page 80, which is insane in a Poirot novel. I would give it a five for padding, but with everything else working fairly well. Yeah, that's fine. A five is fair? <laughs> yes, but let's let's discuss credibility because I think we have a difference of opinion on this. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, on plot credibility, I think because this is a hybrid and we have the thriller element, the plot credibility on these thrillers often is not great, but I actually think that 
she acquits herself fairly well here, especially when you compare it to other thrillers. And the one reason why I'm giving her a fair amount of credit here is that as I was halfway through this book, I'm always very attuned to coincidences happening, especially in these thriller plots, because I think she often uses them to move along the plot and it feels cheap. And there's this ridiculous coincidence whereby Major Knighton says that he sees Ada Mason at a hotel, which is his way of kind of verifying her alibi. And in the moment, not remembering how this novel worked, I thought, oh, my God, that's such a dumb coincidence. That's just so convenient. I'm like writing in the margins about it. And that, of course, ends up being a lie. Major Knighton was lying, and it's integral to the plot of how these two pulled it off. So I kind of really appreciated that. And there were a couple of unnecessary coincidences, but not many. So even though, sure, there's baggy storytelling and whatnot, I think that it's tighter and smarter, especially when it comes to credibility, than a lot of, certainly a lot of the thrillers that have preceded it. I mean, if if it were me, I would swap our scores for plot mechanics and plot credibility because the jewel theft business, all of the disguises, the millions of disguises, I mean, God, that lady's maid must have just like compact with like a costume trunk. Well, she was Kitty Kid, (laughs) sister to Billy, apparently. (laughs) Apparently so. I think you're inclined to give credibility a six. I would have been more inclined to give plot mechanics a six, credibility five. You know what? I'm actually actually totally okay with swapping them because I think sometimes we also get, get down to semantics when we're talking about mechanics versus credibility anyway with the plotting. And I think you have a fair point. I think even like my my point about the whole coincidence being part of the murderous plot, you could say it was part of the mechanics and not credibility anyway. So let's give mechanics a six and credibility a five. Awesome. So serious characters, we only get two. We get Poirot and we get George or George, as Poirot would say. Mm-hmm. And we get a passing reference to Inspector Jap, and we get a Hastings reference where apparently Ka- uh, Catherine has been told many a story. <laughs> about Captain Hastings, which is touching. And Poirot, I think, is really good in this story. But the problem is he doesn't show up until 80-some pages into it. Yeah. It's like a third of the way through the book, which is unacceptable for a Poirot novel. I need my Poirot sooner than that. I would give it some points just for the fact that I was very excited that George slash George was in this novel. This is our first mention of him, and it's... I mean, he really is a replacement for Hastings. Well, there are some choice lines about Paro getting really fussy about his suit and, like, how it has a grease stain and he knows where the grease stain is and poor George is like, well, no, 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 Monsieur Poirot, I took care of that. Oh, God, George. I hope he pays <laughs> you well. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'd give it a solid five. Yeah, I think that that's fair. I mean... It's some good Poirot, but it's just not a sufficient amount of him. Characters within this book specifically, I actually, I really did dig Catherine Gray. And as I mentioned, I think that she is somewhat cut in the mold of Christie's heroines from these earlier thrillers, the ones with a good sense of humor and a sense of adventure, despite a sensible head on their shoulders. But there is also a sadness to her. She's not really plucky. I mean, she is older also she's she's in her mid-30s which she's 33 which is as one of the characters in saint mary mead tells her early on you've lost your first freshness and Catherine is is said to be much entertained by this comment i appreciated both the comment and her reaction i will tell you this much this Catherine, who is slightly younger than that 
is not much entertained by that comment. I'm not even that old. I'm not even that old, but this Catherine did not take kindly to it. it. That just might be the worst way of telling someone that they're no longer young. You've lost your first freshness. I mean, oof. And there's this great sequence when she gets a whole bunch of new clothes from a fancy designer. And the one, it's actually great. It's a, it's a great scene. And also, we can just talk about it now because we're about to get to tone and setting, but it yeah, really let's, does let's enhance... include that. Yeah, it really enhances the tone, and it's something that, again, is surprising to see in a Christie novel if you only know Christie from the adaptations because this is the kind of stuff that just gets completely flattened out in an adaptation. And it's also, I mean, we can argue strongly that it's also padding that she needed to fill out this story is, and this so she adds padding. like several pages the jewel yeah, thieves like great. boris ivanovich and olga demaroff talking yeah. in like a hovel somewhere like that's stupid this was good padding and she there's this one dress that she and the designer both decide looks the best on her and it's something of autumn the title of the dress has autumn in it and she reflects afterwards sadly that like yes it does make sense because She's effectively in the autumn of her life. Again, at 33. (laughs) (laughs) This was 1928. I liked this character because I actually think that she does come alive and she doesn't spring off the page, but she did feel real to me and I was invested in her. She's not Anne Bedingfeld, but she is herself. And again, I think that kind of reflects where Christy was. Well, she might be Anne Bedingfeld if Anne Bedingfeld had spent 10 years of her life. If Anne Bedingfeld's (laughs) father hadn't like keeled over and um, died, like 10 years later, that actually might be Anne Bedingfeld. Absolutely. In fact, that is Anne Bedingfeld. You're a total good call. This is Anne Bedingfeld without the romance, but with all of the drudgery of 10 years, you know, a little bit more beaten down, but she's still got the spark there. The spark hasn't been completely extinguished. And then we mentioned Lennox Tamplin, who was really fun, and even Lady Tamplin. I mean, their repartee was amusing. Even Chubby Tamplin. Like, he and Lady Tamplin, you can see, like, them as a couple completely. I think she did pretty well on characters within this book. It wasn't the best that we've come across, but I would give it a six. I would say that we could have gone higher, but for the fact that a lot of the other characters aren't very good. Sure. And honestly, Derek Kettering, I think he's a big problem. Well, he's a cipher. I mean, there's nothing to even be done with Derek Kettering. Yeah. There's nothing there. The Compte is ridiculous. There's a scene with Derek Kettering and the Compte, just the two of them having to talk, and it's just awful because the two of them just don't seem like real people. And yeah. yeah. Okay, so six for that. Then tone and setting, as we mentioned, the tone, even pre-going to Nice, is rather good. The, the depictions of the train yeah. are all really good. She's clearly been on this train. <laughs> you know, Agatha Christie clearly <laughs> rode on the blue train. And once they get to the south of France, she just pays a lot more attention to the setting of Nice than mm-hmm. I think we're used to getting in any of these Christie books. Again, I think The Man in the Brown Suit, because it had that travelogue element to it in South Africa, there was even more attention in that book, but that's the only one I can think of off the top of my head that felt like it was more of a presence. Right, and both at the beginning and, again, towards the end of the book when Catherine's in mm-hmm. St. Mary Mead, 
the depictions of the town and of the insides of the women's houses that she's in, like the details about like their boxes of clippings and like the brooch collections <laughs> and like how their drawers are organized. Again, some of that is like padding, but it's, it's good, good detail. detail. Yeah, the woman who the 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 woman who who's dying of cancer essentially, who she becomes a companion to. I feel like I know what her house looks like for sure. It's yeah. done well. Yeah. Should we give it a seven? Maybe we should give it an eight. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay with giving it an 8. It's definitely one of the better ones. Let's give it an 8. Okay, and then ways in which the book is stuck in time. There are just a lot of, on the very first page, there's a character, and, and we're told about the least hint of a curve in his thin nose. There's a lot of the typical Christie Jewish stereotypes going oh, on here. So we, out, we get that. It also turns out, like, out of nowhere, Poirot <laughs> happens to mention to Monsieur Papopoulos, your people... And not your people as in the Greeks, but your people in that apparently Poirot figures out he's half Jewish. Yeah, Poirot says, Monsieur, your race does not forget. And then Papopoulos says, a Greek? And Poirot says, it was not as a Greek I meant. And then there was a silence. And then the old man drew himself up proudly. You are right, Monsieur Poirot, he said quietly. I am a Jew. And as you say, our race does not forget. I mean, it's meant as a compliment in that scene. Like, I know, it, it really is meant as a compliment. Which makes it so much worse. Yeah, no. It makes it so much worse. I rationally <laughs> understand that this was written as a compliment, but at the same time, it's like, ooh. Yeah, but the thing is, there are other books that we've gone over and we've talked about how some of these either racially insensitive or class insensitive, whatever elements feel pervasive, and they don't feel pervasive no, they in don't this at book. All. They, they're there and they stick and they stick out which is why they're very jarring even more jarring when you come across them but they're, they don't pervade the book which is why I, I would say two deductions yeah, because you in know terms what, of because um, you know what I think it gets merits actually for being really sensitive about people having an understanding that society changes and that the societal standards change it's actually fascinating even from the very beginning of the book that Ruth's father is so okay with the divorce thing. Yeah, it's true. There is a whole sense that of in this book that we're dealing with a supposedly high society kind of element. It's these British landed gentry and rich American millionaires that are riding on this supposedly fabulous train going to the south of France, but they're not written with any sort of awe or <laughs> aspiration. No. It's transcending, it's certainly transcending class the way they're portrayed, so that's something. Okay, so two deductions for that. With those rankings, we have a total score of 28 for The Mystery of the Blue Train, which actually puts it pretty squarely in the middle in terms of our rankings. Just to do a quick rundown, here's where we are. Our top novel is, of course, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Then next is The Man in the Brown Suit. After that, we actually have a tie hmm. between The Secret Adversary and The Mystery of the Blue Train. And then The Murder on the Links, followed by The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Then the big four, and in dead last, the secret of chimneys. <laughs> and speaking of the secret of chimneys, our next novel, which we will not be doing next week, but approximately three weeks from now, since we will be doing some interstitials, we'll get to that in a second, but our next novel will be The Seven Dials Mystery, which is a sequel of sorts 
to the Secret of Chimneys. It's a superintended battle. It's superintended battle and Lady Eileen Brent. And apparently some other characters as well. I hate to break it to you, Catherine, but I think there is quite a bit of con- oh continuity God. between The Secret of Chimneys and The Seven Dials Mystery. Color be excited. Oh, so excited. So for next week, we are actually going to cover our first Agatha Christie play. This one is both a play and a short story, and it is The Witness for the Prosecution. There was just recently a rather glossy, splashy BBC adaptation that was done, so we thought it would be fun to focus on that story for that episode. We'll be looking at the original short story, the original play, the new BBC adaptation, and of course the classic... And the Billy Wilder, Marlena Dietrich. Yep, classic film adaptation. Charles Lawton. So there's a lot to mine and discuss on that. In the meantime, follow us on facebook.com slash allaboutagatha. You can also follow us on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can follow us on Instagram at allaboutagatha. Email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And please rate and review us, especially on iTunes, as that really helps us out. We will see you next week. Thanks so much. Bye. See you next week. Bye. Bye.